Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, Regenerates. This is Gregory with the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Um, in this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Mr. Joe Brewer, who is um, currently writing a book on Earth regeneration and um, is a complex systems thinker, um, Earth systems um, scientist, and uh, really intelligent guy. I had a lot of fun talking with him, and we dug into bioregionalism, bioregional regeneration, um, the the sort of emerging theory of regenerative economics, uh, the hubris and dangers and pitfalls of techno-optimism, um, and yeah, just had a really uh, fantastic conversation here at the intersection of uh, planetary regeneration and technology and, and market forces and uh, um, collapse um, and you know, civilization and, and what it means to be uh, setting up our future generations for uh, a regenerative world. And um, I think you'll, you'll enjoy today's episode. Um, as always, um, you know, there are a, a few little glitches where there's uh, some timeouts uh, due to internet issues, and um, we'll try to try to take those out if we can. And uh, we do, as oftentimes is the case here on the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, just kind of start mid-sentence. <laughs> so uh, bear with me, and um, I hope you enjoy the, the depth and quality of the conversation and can overlook some of the... Um, you know, superficial glitchiness of, of the podcast. Uh, as always, I'm dedicated to providing the depth of quality of conversation and am not currently making promises on the post-production quality. So uh, I hope that that's okay with all of my listeners out there. Um, have a great time listening and please feel free to leave comments, questions, and let me know if there's anybody that you'd like to see on the podcast. Cool. Well, we sort of just jumped right in. I uh, <laughs> Yeah, we can pull back. <laughs> in my family, but part of that is because my family was bustling about getting ready to leave. I also have a, um, I've got a just about three-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, so I was, you know, just kind of keeping, keeping the conversation rolling and wanting to learn more about your context. But I think it'd probably be useful um, just for listeners if we kind of zoom back out and you just give a quick kind of um, overview about what you feel like you're serving and what's living through you. And I know there's, you know, you're working on a book and um, you know, you've moved your family into a, a space here where you're all working to embody a regenerative lifestyle. And um, so there's a lot of deep sort of uh, vocational work that you're up to. So I'd just love to get a little bit of context with that framing. Like, you know, what are you serving? What are you, what are you up to right now? Yeah. Um, one of the challenging aspects of trying to describe the focus of service and regenerative work is that it's so multifaceted and multi-scale what the challenges are that are all converging within this window of time. Um, 
if I step back and look at how my life evolved to this point as a way of contextualizing it, there was a time when I was studying complexity science and earth systems and getting to a place of grasping at aspects of that big dinosaur, you know, that big elephant that the three blind men are touching, like which pieces could I feel into? And for a long time, my work was about the intersection of meaning making, you know, kind of the cognitive science of how the mind creates meaning, and now that emerges collectively into political discourse and the directions of entire societies. So this realm of how does meaning making shape the pathologies of a society and its attempts to address them. And that really opened me up in many deep ways to a recognition that all political activism is rooted at one level or another in trauma. Whether it's direct acute trauma or vicarious distributed trauma, like the lack of connection to a home place or a lack of understanding of ancestral memory could be a kind of low-level chronic trauma up through to uh, I'm a woman who experienced a lot of violence by men in a patriarchal society and have very acute forms of trauma, that um, political activism was a realm of grappling with that. And I felt a pretty strong, often subtle, but a very strong relationship or set of relationships between cultural trauma and the dysfunctions of politics and how we feel about the human relationship to what's happening to the planet. It's like, how do we frame global warming? Uh, is this a discussion about economic policy issues or is it something deeper? And um, this sort of shapes where I feel my sense of calling and mission is now, which is yeah, a number of people are coming to talk about Gaia consciousness, this feeling of I'm part of the unfolding biosphere of the earth and I feel a, a spiritual relationship to honoring the sacredness of being part of the earth and then doing whatever I can to serve that process of ongoing life of the planet. So there are a growing number of people that may not use the words Gaia consciousness to describe it, but they're really feeling like they are a kind of self-awareness embedded within the planet's unfolding process and they're trying to become responsible servants to it. And a lot of regenerative design is about healing of landscapes and related aspects of uh, how can I be a part of this ecosystem and do something to heal it and be self-aware or be a, an aspect of it that's able to be self-aware. So I feel like a lot of my, my work is in that space of um, helping the people who are on the journey of becoming Gaia consciousness, wherever they are on their journey of the world's a really messed up place. Human activities are a key driver of it. How do I feel about being human? And then how do I build a life for myself and my loved ones? And how do I talk to my family that don't understand it? And various interesting related aspects. Uh, they get right in the heart of that cultural trauma and the grieving process that really is essential. Um, and what I feel like I'm doing right now in a specific way in the writing of my my book is uh, related to this, is um, how do those of us that are trying to restore planetary health, how do we come to a shared understanding of what that narrative feels like as we live into it? How do we live into 
this process over the rest of our lives and actually beyond our lives. So the next 50 years up to the, maybe the next two or 300 years where there are critical tra transitions that will have happened throughout this period of time. Um, some of them are really disturbing and really hard to deal with. And some of them are really beautiful and really inspiring. And it's paradoxical because we have to hold both. Um, and so this idea of articulating a design pathway for regenerating the earth is sort of like, um, I feel like there is not yet a discourse about this. Because a, a discourse is something that has a lot of um, dynamic interactions between different actors and different tribes with their agendas, that the discord among them is what creates the discourse. Mm -hmm. And what I feel is happening now is that the, re the discourse on regeneration is a discourse, but the discourse on regeneration for how we regenerate the entire planet is not yet quite a discourse, but it's becoming one. Right I don't know. I feel like I disagree with people about that all the time. <laughs> yeah, which is which is actually part of how it drives, right? Is the the the, the disagreements are how we how we generate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so it's not yet coherent in the sense that um, there's just not enough disagreement. Is kind of what I'm see, hearing from you. It's like it, it's like somehow the the process of and and I experience this in different ways. Like as you're as you're speaking, I'm sort of seeing this picture of, you know, my life experiences and, and also recently just hearing people tell stories about kind of their like big creative endeavors and how important it is to have someone who sort of disagrees with you to be kind of like struggling with so that you're advancing your thought, so that you're proving a point, so that you're able to have those moments of humility and say, well, what, what if they're right? And what would that mean for my life or my approach? Um, and how would I incorporate that? So there's this like creative struggle, this, you know, it's like grist in a mill. It actually is moving and creating something um, in a way that doesn't, if it's just this sort of like, uh, I think a lot of people just want frictionlessness. It's just sort of yeah. like this striving, this belief that it's just like, oh, it'll just be like, oh, it's no problems. But what you're saying is actually what we need is a critical mass of, of kind of friction devoted to the right, um, yeah, yeah, it, an invitation to devote, you know, friction, attention, movement um, to, the, to the inquiry around what it means to be human in this moment of the evolution of the planet and how to do that well and how to serve the planet and humanity as a single as a singular instead of as these sort of like uh, you know a false falsely opposed fragments yeah the person who i think articulates this with the most sophistication at the moment is daniel schmottenberger Mm -hmm. And he has uh, two video interviews he's done for Rebel Wisdom called The War on Sensemaking, part one and two. And each one of them is about an hour and a half long, where he just goes into the complexity of memetics and how ideas and cultures co-evolve and uh, the challenge of sensemaking, the challenge of discernment. 
and one of the key elements of uh, why it's so hard to do this sense making is this challenge of transcending and yet incorporating con contradictory ideologies. How can we yeah, have an ideology and then work across them at the same not time? Even, I mean, I, I, would, I would argue that if you can't hold uh, seemingly completely opposed views, you're not conscious actually. So, yeah, so and, there's sort of this, there's sort of this, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, yeah, so I mean, A, Daniel's great, Daniel Schmachtenberger for listeners, um, and he has, a, he has a bunch of really important gifts for the conversation, I think, um, which would be interesting to unpack some of those and at, at some point, be that kind of perception of how do you hold two or more seemingly opposed perspectives at the same time and understand that they're true in different contexts. Um, without that capacity, I think that's sort of like one of the foundational capacities of kind of claiming consciousness. Because if you're not doing that, I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that, that you're just sort of running a pattern. Fully deterministic. There is no agency. You know, there's just like you were sort of describing this. You know, like like, like how um, integral um, cultural trauma and as a function of that individual trauma is in shaping culture, in shaping society, and shaping everything from political activism to, you know, the the songs that our children sing as nursery rhymes, all, all, of, all of that is somehow a reflection of these moments in history that were, you know, um, trauma, because that's, you know, that's life responding to the trauma and sort of, you know, calcifying or, or scarring or responding in some way. So if we can't recognize that that, you know, sort of like have the deeper context of that, we will have no ability to discern whether or not the present moment is a precise recapitulation of the original trauma or not. And so if you're just sort of running the autopilot that you think you know, and you're not able to sort of see both perspectives and kind of like go for it, yeah, there's really not much chance to have a living response. You're just, a, I mean, it's just sort of a machine response just you know whatever it was the binary whatever you know whatever it's shifted into you're just going to go that way it's input just, output the input is a the output is b no actual uh cognitive uh, solution generating is happening and uh, jordan greenhall who's a collaborator with daniel schmottenberger talks about this as sovereignty and he talks about sovereignty in a cybernetic way that the information processing of an organism it's and the emergence of intelligence is the organism processing information it's in, in its environment to pursue things that are life creating. So like finding food, mating appropriately and other things in a kind of simple cybernetics of living system sort of way. But the autonomy of the living entity, the ability to function as like a paramecium swimming around in a fluid is autonomous and functions with, with a kind of sovereignty when it's information processing, lets it make decisions to support its own life. 
And when you bring that to the much more complex level of multicellularity, and then later to superorganisms, and then to human cultures, and you get these increasing levels of nuanced interpretation that are needed to make sense of information processing, to make sense of things, that uh, one of the elements of autonomy and sovereignty is that there's the supports of decision-making actually support what the decision is trying to make. So if you're trying to find food as a paramecium, your ability to navigate the chemical gradients of your environment needs to direct you toward food or else that decision-making process lacks efficacy. And then you're not really being sovereign because your decisions are based on incorrect interpretations of information from the environment. The discernment is not getting you to food. And that way of purposeful action toward efficacy, toward things that actually work, when we look at our complex planetary environment and our complex cultural environments that we're in, the challenge of discernment is huge. And so this ability to hold multiple perspectives is really important to that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a couple. I'm, I'm drawn to maybe, I, I don't know Jordan and I don't know his arguments, but I would, I, I'm, it feels like there's something missing there, but, I, but it may just be because I don't really have the context. But, but I, would, I, would, I would argue that, you know, and, and here where, you know, they're sort of holding this lightly because there's the danger of getting in, into um, a semantic situation where words mean slightly different things to different people. And we may end up in the end be saying the same thing or close to the same thing. But um, in service to that sort of like, you know, creative friction generation, I, I have the sense, I have the sense that what everything you're saying is true. And that's not actually, I mean, I, I use the term agency. I, I don't, um, sovereignty to me has a different connotation. But, you know, w when I'm thinking about agency, if, if agency is actually going to be born and survive, one of the primary attributes is that it is possible for the being in question to, to have a never before thought thought <laughs> to that, that if we're just judging the decision of of metabolizing information and making decisions we're still stuck stuck in the mechanistic input output and it's a calibration mm -hmm. question and not a consciousness question and so if there's consciousness it's actually the the ability for for spontaneous sort of transcendence of a, you know, and, and if you're thinking in game theory, it's like the spontaneous transcendence of a closed game into an yeah. open game is the, is like somehow one of the earmarks of consciousness. And I would, I would also correlate that with sovereignty. Although I use in my sort of thinking about all of this, that that to me is, is tightly correlated with agency, you know, how, and, and you know, and it, and it sort of tugs this philosophical, you know, strand, and we could dive down the rabbit hole of free will. Um, 
determinism and I, I be, you know, I, I'm sort of curious. I mean, A, I, I sort of say, let's shelf free will for a moment because that's a, it's a whole big, beautiful conversation. And I kind of want to circle around and, and approach this from a different perspective, which is um, recently we got in a little bit of a Twitter, a, a, a Twitter escapade in which um, my interpretation of what you're saying is essentially, uh, and, and just upgrade if, if I'm missing it. Um, my, my interpretation of what you're saying is, hey everybody, we have to uh, come to terms with the reality that it's, you know, we're fucked. That, that civilization as we know it, and humanity as we know it, and even the biosphere as we know it, is already done. And we're in sort of the sunset of that and the sun is going down. And um, if, if, if we're not able to accept that cognitively, and if we're not able to accept that culturally, um, we will have no ability to interact with the real world. Um, is that an accurate uh, sort of um, uh, re like mirror of your uh, thinking on you know where we're at yeah. and what we need to do? I think it's it's very close to my perspective on it, and the one place that I think it um, that I would clarify and and distinguish from what you just said is that I feel the people who are developing strategies for engagement for this regenerative work need to have that understanding. And when we get into the larger meshwork of ways people engage with regeneration, it becomes more, blur more blurry how critical it is. But the piece that I think is really essential that uh, has been articulated probably the most powerfully in William Catton Jr.'s 1977 book, Overshoot. He was a human ecologist who described the dynamic of the human presence on earth as a planetary scale phenomenon. And like the work of Nate Hagens would be in a more like updated and detailed version of the same argument, which is that when we look at the thermodynamics or the energy flows, or if we were an ecologist, we might talk about the trophic flows of nutrients and energy through human ecology as it relates to the biosphere, that the human population is, is too large. It grew this large through a brief period of, it, of consuming fossil fuels that took a lot longer to produce than are being depleted. And there's a drawdown of non-renewable resources where non-renewable is determined on human timescales. We can't renew the things on the scales that we would need to, even if some of them like fossil fuels may be renewable on million year timescales. Uh, and that part of our challenge, maybe to give it a, a design heuristic, would be um, a key element of effective design is the ability to understand the constraints that the design is working with, and then use that understanding of constraints to generate creativity that is workable. And so my sense of um, understanding and accepting the planetary collapse is partly about the ability to discern where we are in that process. And one piece of it that is an obscurity in the way the discourse is structured right now, which means not everyone feels this way, but it's sort of the 
predominant or default position is the collapse is defined in human terms. So someone looks at the Roman Empire or some other historic human cultural example and sees the collapse as it hasn't happened yet because the human population is still growing and the complexity of our globalized system is still growing. And the, the subtle step is seeing planetary collapse as something larger than that. So like the collapse of biodiversity in the last 100 years has already been occurring, but the human population has grown in partly by consuming those resources. So there's this time mismatch between the peak of human population and its decline and the peak of biodiversity and its decline. And so there are other phenomena like this in the planetary system where the planetary collapse has already been going on for a long time and we're in the middle of it. But the human dynamic of like the limits to growth study maybe as, a, as an example where the population peaks and begins to collapse in their simulations starting around 2030. So it hasn't happened yet. Uh, this distinction of collapse for the planet and collapse for humans has been conflated in the discourse. And so there's an unclarity that comes up there. And when we're thinking about regenerating the biosphere, we need to understand the collapses that have already occurred in the biosphere. The collapse of fisheries in the world ocean would be an example, um, or the loss of topsoils up to this point, or the amount of um, biomes that are no longer intact because collapses have occurred to them in the past. And so this is where I think that discernment is really important for doing regenerative design at the strategy level. And it does create a, a really important tension about whether collapse is seen in anthropocentric terms or biocentric terms. And that's one of the things that I play provocateur to try to um, open up that paradox and hold the conversation. Yeah, I mean, that all sounds um, fine as far as it goes. I guess I'm, what, what I'm curious about is, you know, and, and I think this likely resonates with your, what I'm understanding about your kind of deeper work in the world, but, you know, <clears throat> there's sort of, there's, there's a couple of different layers of this. One is <clears throat> the sort of um, objective ecological reality of, um, <clears throat> cascading ecological failures, um, but also the what what my problem is is that <clears throat> the the story of cascading ecological failures is never paired with its equal and opposite, which is the story of cascading syntropic ecological regeneration, which is <clears throat> completely miraculously possible and there's there's ample evidence of it um so so our so it's sort of like humans destructive capacity and humans creative capacity as a partner with life um i don't know if they're on par but i, I have the sense that m i would have the opposite sense my sense is that the discourse does not in any way lack people who are hand wavy and full of fear about cascading system failure. I see that everywhere. People are paralyzed by it. People are 
rambling on and on in in like these trauma responses about fisheries collapse and soil stuff and it's just it's all you hear everywhere no and people don't get out of it there's no escape it's like this so from my perspective where i'm sitting it's like the opposite i have the opposite experience i have the experience of everywhere i go people are just sort of like they awaken and then they go straight into this sort of like paralysis of overwhelm and i think you're right to call out you know unprocessed grief and um you're right to to notice that there's deeper layers of personal and cultural trauma that are coupled with that <clears throat> creating that kind of cognitive milieu that's just like paralyzing and uh and f from my perspective one of the like the ability to hold that and to not run away from it to hold that that, that it is true that that, that, that those things are true. <laughs> keep bonking my, uh, excuse me, bonking my uh, mic here. That those things are true, but also simultaneously hold the truth that, you know, Amazonian cultures um, stewarded the biodiversity, gardened the biodiversity that we now find in the Amazonian basin. And mm, yeah. the Mayan people in Mesoamerica, um, got the bulk of their sustenance from forest gardens, not from annual corn tillage. And that there are these examples all around the world of humans, um, not just living in equilibrium, but like living in, in such a way that creates a, a you know, negative entropy, that life begets life, that there is more photosynthetic efficiency taking place. And, and that humans are part of the the web that's sort of managing that and and upgrading that. And so there's sort of like <clears throat> there's those two pieces to hold simultaneously. And then there's and then there's the question. And I think this is you know then there's the question for me: What do you choose? What narrative do you choose to embody and win? And what is that narrative going to uh, how does how does that narrative affect your being state? How does that narrative affect your ability to be or become in in the present world? And you know, um, there's sort of and, and and what are the ethics of that? So <clears throat> I'm just very fascinated by that question, and I have the I have the reaction to 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 the sort of discernment that you're bringing, I, I sort of have, uh, I'm like, well, Joe's saying that, you know, we're all fucked and we should all go sort of like huddle in our <clears throat> little permi eco village bubbles and wait for the, you know, shit to blow over and then, and then come back out, you know, in a couple hundred years and try to fix things or, you know, what's the, what is the, um, the strategic invitation if, we're holding the the collapse story as singular. Yeah, one of the pieces is that um, the collapse story is part of the regeneration story. And the way that the collapse, or one way that the collapse story relates to the regeneration story is by understanding the role of senescence in uh, the developmental lifespan of an organism. 
or synapsis is the uh, syna uh, senescence is the aging and dying process of an organism, where its regenerative capacities begin to uh, lose coherence, and then the, the organism gradually comes to a place of death, which is the breaking down of the body of the organism. That's the senescence process. And what's really powerful about senescence is that senescence is a key aspect of ecosystem level autopoiesis, mm -hmm. which is that if we don't have the breakdown and the cycling of those bodies to provide them again to be the bodies of others, then the autopoietic process at larger than organism scale doesn't occur. So that kind of the composting aspect of the dying process is essential. And one of the pieces of uh, regeneration that I see this human collapse dynamic being so interesting to consider is the ways that ecological secession is hindered by the human management of simplified ecosystems like monoculture, agriculture, where basically a, a huge amount of effort is put into management to keep secession from occurring, to keep the ecosystem simple, keep it in that pioneering stage of you know, rows of cornfields or whatever they happen to be, versus embracing and finding beauty in the, the role of that dying process, which is a collapse dynamic, or many different collapse dynamics that are part of that ecological secession. And I think that like when Joanna Macy has talked so eloquently about what our descendants would have gratitude for with us as their ancestors for having chosen a regenerative path in this time in history, part of it is having a healthy relationship to death, which our modern industrial cultures do a terrible job of giving people a healthy relationship to death, as is evident by the beauty industry, and how many ways people try to stay young forever. And so there's this set of issues that come out in that space that um, you know, we shouldn't try to cover all of them now, but just to kind of dip into it a bit. Like one of the things is the idea that the mechanistic view of the universe, that kind of Cartesian clockwork universe, all living things are machines, you know, um, that's been so destructive in the last few hundred years. That lot finds lots of subtle expressions that are called biomimicry in terms of urban sustainability discussions. So like, the use of electric cars as an example where um, basically a, an optimized machine environment is used to address ecological issues. And the deeper eco-literacy, the deeper understanding of ecological relationships is not developed fully enough in the life experiences of people who have not spent enough time in nature. So they don't really understand how the ecosystems work. Part of our challenge in getting that um, a regenerative worldview, like what's happened historically in the Amazon rainforest, um, there's a really powerful role in the cultures that had that relationship to ecology and those that still have it today that is grounded in an indigenous approach to spirituality and spiritual education for children. Which is about personifying things. The river is not an object, it's a person. The rock is not an object, it's a person. The tree is a person, the fish is a person. And then developing a relationship with the sacred to the ecological aspect of those relationships. That indigenous spiritual education is one of the aspects of those cultures that enables them to function. And it is 
juxtaposed against the kind of machine metaphors that presume the universe is dead. Instead takes uh, a position of treating these as living relationships and then personifying them. And this is really important when we get into the, the pathway for someone who's been in these death economies, where they're from an industrial culture that treats the world as though it's dead, and then feeling their disconnections from that and gradually finding their way into nature experiences and then trying to find their way to regenerative lifestyles. That for many of those people, there's a shedding of hubris that needs to occur. There's a shedding of um, assumptions about human exceptionalism and human superiority and the hubris of um, technological innovation and techno-optimism that um, William Catton in his 1977 book co called those people cargo cults, which is where that term comes from, is from his book, uh, as a kind of denialism. And what's happening on a planetary scale right now is we're entering into a mass extinction event, but we're not fully in it yet. If we're fully in it, then human extinction would be a more or less a foregone conclusion. If we're at the place where the biosphere was unraveling enough for entire classes, you know, for biological classes to go away, the uh, viability of humans would be really low. Um, we'd be pretty likely you know, to be, you know, extinction would be our almost foregone conclusion. We're at a place where we're not quite at that point yet. And what we need to let go of is the fear of the dying the fear of collapse for the things that need to go away so that ecological secession can occur. And this is um, part of how the people who grew up in industrial, urban, cultural settings that are trying to transition into regenerative lifestyles, or they're the, the people who have this trauma grief processing that they need to do which I put myself in that category as someone who has, has been needing to do it and is in the process of doing it. Um, and it really is a, a subtle, difficult conversation to try to capture in a sort of stereotyped way, like how do we create, turn this into a narrative? It's more like what is the coherence among a diversity of narr narratives that can relate to this in appropriate ways? as we continue on this journey into the middle of this century. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. Again, I mean, a, a certain amount of what you said, you know, at different points in my, you know, in my journey, I could have said myself. Certain other things I may have said differently. Um, and, and certain things I've come to question. I, I, I sort of say I, I would just to kind of like anchor in 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 service of creating like like the right space for the discourse between the two of us, I would sort of say what what I hear is a very accurate description of where I was at, like my work my my worldview in something like two thousand nine. 2008, 2008, probably 2008, when I was hosting the uh, 10th Bioregional Congress um, of Turtle Island. And um, as 
you know, that was what, what I was focused on vocationally, that and, and you know, permaculture, eco-village education stuff. And what I've, the small things that I've started through my life experience to have sort of gnaw, gnaw at in that larger arc or narrative, which I would sort of assemble with some, you know, forgive me for broad strokes, but sort of, of, this, course, of this sort of understanding, this understanding of um, the larger cycle of, uh, the larger arc of ecological succession, um, senescence and regeneration, and, and an estimation of where we're at at that arc, which places us in sort of a, you know, if we're not careful, a somewhat deterministic space in this wheel of life where we have sort of no choice but to go to the next place. So there's that uh, piece of things. There's the sort of, um, then there's the bundle, the thought bundle around sort of techno-determinism, techno-utopianism, um, the singularian vision of uh, sort of technology saving us and the world sort of of, of like pure information uh, being born and, and, and more particularly the reaction to that uh, worldview by those of us who um, are in love with the poetic beauty of just good old fashioned biological life <laughs> and, and, and the experience of that. Um, and then there's some pieces in there that kind of like bring those two sort of meme plexes together around, you know, how, how to have daily and daily cultural practices that make it possible to just like, sense make in the world. So that's kind of what I'm holding. And the things that I've experienced that sort of have disrupted those foundations of my worldview, which I think, you know, probably there's a lot of shared reality between the two of us, are a couple fold. One is I have increasing uh, respect for chauvinism. It's Interesting. Unpack that some more. I'm really curious to hear what you mean by that. There, there's this whole, I mean, sh so chauvinism has become, through the feminist movement, a, a pejorative word that describes mostly men. You know, you almost never hear it. You never hear chauvinism. You, the only times you ever hear it in, in you know, mo the modern discourse is male chauvinism or cultural chauvinism. It's the only time you ever hear that word. Uh, however, if you ever go and have an experience with a, a somewhat intact, I hope none of us are going out and trying to find, in quotes, intact uh, indigenous cultures because, you, you know, you're a carrier of uh, infectious memes and shouldn't be doing that. But if you ever are swept in your life towards a somewhat intact experience of, of an indigenous village, it's chauvinist as hell. Extraord chauvinism is like uh, one of the pillars of tribal identity. It's one of the pillars of meaning making for humans. Yeah. It's just, what are you chauvinistic about? What are you proud about? What, what puts 
metal in your backbone? What is what are the things that you would like stand and die for? Um, and, and and I think this is the you know in in general my my critique of the sort of like sloppy postmodern uh, infection <laughs> that makes getting real work done very hard in the sort of permaculture eco-village, you know, broader sort of regenerative movement is people's discomfort with owning their chauvinism because everybody is, whether they, whether they're trying to avoid it or not, whether they're making fancy stories to, to, to uh, degrade what they're proud of, which is a, crazy silly thing to do in my mind so i've come to have a deep value and uh not for sort of like not for the juvenile and um unself-aware chauvinism of you know a 15 year old football star but but for the deep beautiful grief drenched chauvinism of you know like a, a jewish holocaust survivor yeah i relate to this really powerfully around the sense of um whether we believe humans deserve to stay exactly Should humans be part of the planet and you know i've been asked this question a lot why did my wife and i choose to have a child so our yeah. daughter just turned three. Exactly. So exactly. Yeah. You're hitting it's, the nail on the really head. It's really powerful. Yeah. And one and of the things... And damn straight, you, de you deserve to have a child and, and humans deserve to be here. And like, I am a human chauvinist to the core. Humans, yeah. the, the world needs us. There is no, no room in my life for second guessing that. Uh, and that's that's deeply chauvinistic and i would just sort of like i'll sing it from the mountaintop and in order to earn that in order to earn the the you know what that does is it puts us in a place as people as humans as men women children um as as members of a greater than human world as as you know threads woven into a basket it demands it demands something of us and that's what that's in the, the, the like healthy expression of chauvinism is what you demand of yourself and you demand of others because it is so deeply ingrained in the sort of cultural fabric that it, it that that is humanness which is you know humans aren't individuals you know we're 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 communities and the things that we're that, that the the unnegotiable things that we will not negotiate our communities will not negotiate about is sort of like those are the boundary conditions right yeah and, and what i think is really important to build upon this this place of um authentic moral judgment meaning a, a judgment of an ethical position from a place of authenticity which is i really do believe this i really do care about this and i'm going to stand for it yeah, it's moral. It is moral. I mean, I think that it is, it is a morality and sort of, and it's an interesting thing, but so this is, this is something that's moved for me. And I think it was always there latent, but I got into the washer of the sort of 
uh, of the movement that we're in. And I started to realize how many misanthropic, like human hating people there are. And, um, and how easy it is to, to dance around and try and sort of like in the environmental movement, how much people try to hedge in order to, you know, sort of like maintain this looseness knit alliance that's only real identity comes from being anti all of that. Um, and then there's people who are, you know, like human chauvinists who are like, no, you know, people have a place on earth and we just have to learn how to live. And there are people who are like, we don't have a place on earth and we need to just go away. Right? Yeah, or, or colonize Mars or what, some other version of the same thing. Well, yeah. interesting yeah, enough, I actually would argue that the, the, the Mars colonists are likely more, there's more shared ground and more common reality. And this is where I was going to get to the yeah. next piece. So like foundation, like erosion of foundation has a <clears throat> more sort of like nuanced and, um, and curious uh, understanding of, of like the role of humans, the essential role of humans. And, you know, I use the word chauvinism there to be provocative, but it's, it's, a, it's an invitation. The next is around techno-determinism, which is sort of the, um, I mean, I totally resonate. The biomimicry field drives me fucking crazy. Um, circular economy drives me nuts. Um, just because it's <laughs> kind of like sustainability, you know, 2.0, which all, has all of the baked in um, misunderstandings of... Uh, sort of biophysical reality and um, you know this sort of like yeah. do less bad you know mitigate like, harm one of the people who's really laid this philosophical inquiry well is Peter Berg with, when he was running the World Drum Foundation and yep. promoting bioregionalism he was writing about this stuff in the late 60s early 70s describing where the environmental movement was going wrong yep at that time, it was beginning to. At this point, we look back and say, damn, that was prescient, because that's where it did go. Uh, that so much of this comes down to uh, what he sometimes called um, life place living, learning how to live in place, not just place-based living, which may or may not have this deeper ecological grounding, uh, depending on what a person's you know, baggage is that they're bringing to it. And you see a lot of that with biomimicry, that the biomimicry conversation can be completely embedded within a technical progress narrative and fail to be grounded in a deep ecology sort of way. Well, or that's can where I'm sort of trying to, that's where I'm trying to, to uh, that's where I'm tr sort of wanting to make an, another distinction. It, um, I mean, there's a couple of layers there, but there's another, there's another distinction, which is that technology is calcified culture, essentially. It's, it's like, a, it's an artifact of, and it's dynamic now. And, and 
and arguably, I think, actually being imbued with all attributes of life, essentially. Um, so there is sort of like the speciation, there's a new class being mm -hmm. born into the world through, through humans, essentially. Like we're like the reproductive organs of some new life form, um, which is yeah. terrifying and cool at the same time. Yeah. If, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the concept of evolutionary transitions, because um, it's very much about this. An evolutionary transition is where there's a symbiotic relationship between two biological entities that each have their own natural selection dynamics. Yeah, sort of but like the trans the bringing in of mitochondria into... Exactly. Cells. And then the transition is when they get to a higher level of interdependence and natural selection occurs at the higher integration level and they can no longer survive separate. So mitochondria no longer reproducing outside of the cell, of the eukaryotic cell is a kind of classic example. But when people have attempted to, to describe what are all of the evolutionary transitions in history, prokaryote to eukaryote is one, but single cell to multi-celled is another, form of social group, formation of social groups of organisms is another. And people have identified human language as one because it creates a collaboration space of functional cultural integration. And you get some interesting, in the later stages, it gets more philosophical and difficult to determine for certain that they are, whereas the eukaryotic, prokaryotic transition is more obvious. Yeah. But this thing about technology becoming a dynamic living system is an example of an evolutionary transition attempting to occur. Or like yeah. pr in process. So it, well, it fits in, this criteria really it's well. It's in process. And I think... I think the, the degree to which that transition takes place in a way that is um, imbued and enchanted by life or Gaia consciousness is the degree to which that transition will uh, be one that I, you know, to, to use that sort of Joanna Macy framing, the one that I, I will be sort of proud to tell the story to my children and great-grandchildren. And the degree to which that transition happens without sort of an enchantment, you know, mythopoetic enchantment with life um, is a very scary sort of a planetary scape. It's a scare, scary story to, to hold an image of. So... Yeah. From my perspective, that then demands a very interesting softening and hardening at the same time of how we approach sort of techno-determinism. Because it, it starts to, for me at least, it starts to identify the sort of the techno-fixation as, you know, like the, in, in Silicon, the, the world of blockchains and the world of AI and the world of you know, satellites and drones as one of the most important arenas for regenerative work taking place. Yeah, when I was in graduate school, I was in an atmospheric science department in a satellite remote sensing research group where we were studying clouds using satellite data. And one of the big lessons that I sort of took immediately but became subtle and had lots of nuances emerge, mm -hmm. was how the first observational satellite is 
a moment of planetary consciousness, yeah. a moment of a new system of biological perception emerging as a cyborg, as a yeah. human machine interacting dynamic. And um, the same happens when you look at computer simulation and what we've learned to do with computer simulation, where we have needs to manage complexity that we cannot do without computer simulation and with the visualization of the, the computational outputs. So like climate modeling as an example of something that we will have a very hard time doing regenerative planetary work without computational models of the dynamic planet because yeah. of the complexity we're dealing with. And this relates to the design pathway for regenerating Earth, which is um, one of the anchors, an intermediate anchor that is concrete enough for people to imagine around, but complex enough that we can't quite make concrete is what is a bioregional economy? Yeah, what is a subsistence system at an ecological scale that's meaningful? And that is holistic. And um, one of the elements of regenerating the earth is um, what Stuart Cowan, who's currently with the Regenerative Communities Network and the Capital Institute, uh, he and Sam Vandren wrote about this in the early 90s. They called it, they called it scale linking. How do you create cohesion of functional relationships across scales within a system? Mm -hmm. And the bioregional scale is really interesting for that because you have the landscape functions that are smaller scale and you have the planetary functions that are larger scale. It's like the weather patterns or the ocean currents or things that are larger scale. In the smaller scale, you have this specific marsh that is doing this water retention and filtering as part of a larger watershed. And you have these different nested scales and the bioregional scale is an emergent integration of the lower scales and the larger scales. It's a touch point between them that is coherent enough to design with, which, and I say coherent enough because it's, if you start to work with the law, you quickly realize it's, you can't properly be concrete with it. It's too complex, but it can be managed in a kind of Eleanor Ostrom polycentric governance of the commons sort of way that the scaling of governance to manage the commons has been demonstrated for things like coastal estuaries and sustainable fisheries and landscape restoration projects that if they're not by a regional scale, they're at least approaching it. So we're moving toward the ability to design bioregional economies. And we, um, from what I've seen, we have all the pieces to do it. It has not been fully right. demonstrated, but we're, we're quickly moving into it. And well, I think that- I don't think it can be fully de demonstrated in a, it's like, I don't, I may be wrong about this, but I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it's a statement that I hold loosely, but I'm not sure we can fully demonstrate a regenerative bioregional economy without sort of the full planetary, it's, you know, it's a chicken or egg scenario where um, without having a planetary apparatus, essentially you know without being able to 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 borrow that sort of uh scale linking i i would refer to that as you know um 
nestedness. Yeah. And the relationship between nested holes. Um, in at Region Network, we talk about a lot about um, nested caring, or that is establishing the uh, essentially in our paradigm contracts, but the 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 agreements between nested holes that creates a flow of mutual care. And in this case, that's around, you know, carbon cycle outcomes and biodiversity outcomes, right? In a very grounded biophysical way. Um, So a bioregion has to have a nested caring relationship with other bioregions and the rest of the planet. So you have to, in order to move towards a bioregional economy, you have to have a singular global, you have to have like your pulse on kind of like the global carbon accounting, for instance. Yeah, yeah, this what is, is exactly the why, it's, why it's planetary scale for the regions to work, but the regions are what, at the same time, the regions are what constitute the functioning of the planetary scale. Yeah. So they both have to arise in a concurrent dynamic but it might not be a time length the entire sequence. And, yeah. and it's unlikely to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in heated agreement about that. Yeah, and there's a, there's a collapsing of, or a breaking down of the globalized economy that's part of it, while at the same time, a globalized um, supply chain dynamic that needs to maintain as much functional integrity through that transition as possible. So the way that the globalized economy is structured now is, primarily extractive and so it's not regenerative and the model of a bioregionally a nested system of bioregional economies is that wherever there's extraction there's also replenishment in a in a robust circulation meaning it's living systems nested throughout um, which we don't currently have in place and i think part of our challenge is the coherence of contextual measures. How do we understand the contextual measures of something like the health of an ecosystem, the embodied carbon, and this is where I think the Region Network has something really powerful to offer is prototyping of how to measure this and then make financial transactions work around it is part of how that, um, you know, that work on the creating the right financial instruments is super important. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, I think that's sort of our aim. I mean, there's a couple of layers that we're working. One is we sort of simply have to have a reference design for sort of the the open, uh, for an open version of the current ecosystem service marketplace that just yeah. simply allows people to engage with the, you know, carbon credit tools of today, which I'm, are kind of crappy, <laughs> uh, but but there's like an existing market and there's you know existing exchange happening. So but 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 really, what's exciting and I think what drives us is more exactly you know we're right. So right now we're working on a uh, a design for you know sort of like a credit and or even you know credit and bonds and even monetary schemes that. Are, that source value from bioregional potential. So, so creating sort of a scientific consensus of the bioregional, holistic bioregional potential, potential functioning of the ecosystem, which includes, you know, 
in a planetary scale, what you're asking is, what is the carbon drawdown potential of this bioregion in, yeah. in an intact agroecological conservation you know, landscape matrix? And then that, instead of the, these con strange concepts of like additionality and leakage, which, were, which are like band-aids over this fragmented carbon cycle <laughs> science weirdness that mumbo jumbo that happens in the carbon markets, you sort of have this holistic landscape approach and you're simply making a statement about how any given watershed or piece of property is performing against that potential. You know, and then you can, you know, you can sort of, you can quantify that and then you can monetize that so that there's this robust circulatory flow so that people can value and coordinate, you know, and, and that sort of links into whatever kind of commons management or market management mechanisms you'd like. Um, yeah. 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 I, I think um, we're pre in pretty deep resonance on this part of the conversation where the part of the challenge is creating viable demonstrations where the word viable might need to be in quotes viable demonstrations sufficient to de-risk investment yeah sufficient for people who have resources uh that like i was in um i was on the team with the capital institute for about six months last year where i worked with john fullerton on this around bioregional economic development and so i would hear in conversations with him the other people he was talking to. And one of the things that is like sort of a, the conversation is not as mature as we would like, but the conversation is at least happening, is there are institutional investors who have trillions of dollars to invest, who have very important legal constraints on how they can spend the money without, while managing the risk because they're investing other people's money. So like pension plans and other large scale pools of investment. And that there are people within that space who are trying to invest in regenerative, like portfolios of regenerative projects. Yep. And the, the mechanisms for managing the risk are not quite adequate for the legal, kind of the, the triggers of legal response that come up in those investment environments. So they're not able to release that money. But it's clear from the people having that conversation that that money will start to move into the regenerative space in the near future, in the next 18 months to three or four years, somewhere, we'll start to see hundreds of millions and then billions and then trillions of dollars moving into the regenerative space. And if these financing mechanisms have not been set up in a regenerative way, it's going to be a huge influx of wasted capital. Yeah, no, totally. A real serious need to get this right in a very short time window to get it right. Um, so, the, so that's uh, an immediate design really a milieu of design challenges because um, it's like a one pulse blood infusion where the blood is money in this case uh, that if that's invested badly we're going to tremendously reduce our regenerative capacities for the subsequent decade or two but if it's if it's put into dynamics that really do stimulate bioregional economic development then it could be empowering in a transformational way so right. This window of opportunity is huge to get. And that's money. where, you know, circling back, I mean, I, I totally agree. I'm in heated agreement with all of that. And circling back to one of our initial, initial sort of points of conversation, which is, you know, okay, how do you hold 
that fact, which is that there's a never before seen potential to realign the human economy with the greater than human world, the biosphere, and serve biosphere, you know, so, so that the, the emergent um, waste, the, the, that which our day-to-day activities just creates innately, is instead of being microplastics and, you know, carbon dioxide and methane and, you know, chemical pollution, the, the outputs, the innate outputs of the human economy are, you know, photosynthetic edge and niches and carbon edge and topsoil. And, um, you know, that, that, that is that shift of what the excess sort of energy is manifest as in the biosphere that can take place. And we have, you know, okay, so we have 10 years and the next two years are pivotal. Like if we, if we fuck up the next two years, then we don't actually have 10 years, you know, but we have a 10 year sprint right now where we have to do something miraculous. Right. And we have to, a a bunch of us have to be able to regenerate a being state and an awareness that allows us to show up every day to move through that. So it's sort of like, it's sort of like a, um, you know, the metaphor is, it's like a, team competition you know or or whatever you have a team of people you have a limited period of time you have to perform really highly in order to do it so what do we learn from people who put themselves in that kind of experience by choice day in and day out what are the what are the attributes of you know uh to to steal uh douglas rushkoff's term you know what are the attributes of team human over the next 10 years you know and and what is the story that you tell yourself? And this is where I wonder about, I, I fully agree with your assessment of the, the demand for, to, to like avoid cognitive bias. There is a demand that we face the reality of biosphere collapse. But then on the other hand, we have to show up and we have to be sort of like, um in a in a being state in which failure is not an option <laughs> so yeah, that I had, a, yeah, I had a really specific example of this last year in june i was at the reporting 3.0 conference which kind of hosts a lot of the leading thinkers and practitioners in the space of uh corporate social responsibility and sustainability measurements um although they've actually moved beyond the corporate space that's sort of where they started 10 years ago And there was this group of students at Erasmus University in Rotterdam that came to a talk that I gave in the morning about the cultural evolution of economics, where I explained how economics became based on the science of dead matter because of equilibrium physics in the late 1800s. And then as all of the complexity and evolutionary-based models of communities arose in the mid-20th century, economics became atrophied as a kind of professionalized domain. There was a big gap. So there's a group of students who are economics students at Erasmus University who came to my talk in the morning, but the conferences during finals week said to leave the conference to go take final exams. 
Then they come back in the afternoon and there's six students who came up to me and said, this morning we heard you explain how 80 years ago we knew these things about economics were falsified and wrong. And today we had to go and hold our nose and not vomit as we wrote those untrue things to be able to pass our exams in our economics class. Yeah. And they said, so what do we do? And, and I sort of, you know, being a provocateur, I said, well, drop out of college and go find a regenerative campus to learn regenerative design and start practicing it. And all six of them, you know, in an enthusiastic way said, I'm in, you know, I'll, I'll drop out of school tomorrow. Where do I go? Where's the campus? <laughs> yeah, and my answer, and I was like, here's the problem, is these places are not known as campuses and they're not visible and discoverable. And I started naming examples of, there are places you can go to learn things like this. That, uh, you, you know, like I just visited Rancho Mastatal in Costa Rica last week, and that's a place where people are learning some of this. And there are other places like this. I uh, said so the problem is that we do not have a wayfinding system for the millions of young people who would drop out of college tomorrow, drop out of high school tomorrow, and do this if they knew how, if they had a story that told them how. Well, you know, I, I would say actually, you know, uh, this too, this too has, has happened. I mean, so Gaia University, for instance, is, yeah. has a flexible, you know, take it where, take it in your back pocket, wherever you go, you know, have a rigorous community of advisors, have yeah. connection with peers and have connection with high quality content that is in increasing your capacity to engage with you know, regenerative thinking and, you know, and, un and unlearn all of the various, you know, indoctrinations of uh, outdated ways of thinking. So, and, I, and I'm sure there may be others, but, but. Yeah, there, there are others, yeah. They've struggled, yeah. like Guy University has struggled because in Europe, people aren't accustomed to paying money for education. And, you know, and in the States, people are, are accustomed to paying a lot for education. And Gaia U is sort of this like, uh, you know, it's like it's cheap, but it's, it's, it's cheap enough that can it be trusted in the US? And it's too expensive that like, why would you go pay for an education in Europe? So they have this sort of like interesting market fit problem. <laughs> yeah, and one of the ways that I've thought about this is uh, there are three domains of activity that are not well enough integrated yet. One of them is the, uh, the restoration or regeneration of a piece of land. It's like someone who comes into a degraded land starts doing agroforestry or whatever they happen to be doing there, that set of processes. The second is the education of people to learn how to do that sort of regenerative work. And then the third is the financial investment of those activities as an integrated whole. Mm -hmm. And when those get put together, then what starts to happen is someone might get, a, say, a Gaia University education, go to a regenerative project to learn and practice, and have their lifestyle supported by the investment in those improvements, because the value chains are actually being tracked in the investment field. Yeah, I mean, that's how I, that's, that's how I did my master's degree, is yeah. precisely that, is precisely, like, I did a Gaia University master's degree program in 2006, 
and uh, lived in a, you know, lived in an intentional community and learned and taught and practiced and built several businesses, a um, couple of which still exist today. And that was my like action learning, you know, so there was an integrated, you know, my livelihood was, was linked to building the economy of, of a community whose livelihood was linked to building the health of the region you know, and so there was this sort of, you know, is this nice ergonomic fit. Now, at a at another level, though, I do think there's a vacuum because, for instance, in order for me to get out and start doing the, you know, sort of more economic systems change work that I'm called to do, you know, I essentially had to just like go I, the the nested hole. So there are. Rancho Mastatal or Eco Village Training Center or, you know, Findhorn or some ecosystem restoration camp somewhere or our little farm in Ecuador, Finca y Colado or other things. Um, the, the scale, you can go learn um, forest gardening and you could go learn, you know, the economics of, a, of running a permaculture workshop. But the next scale up, how to learn to create a transnational planetary regeneration cooperative or yeah. how to intervene with uh, central bank fiat currency issuance in a way that, uh, you know, creates avenues for regenerative finance uh, or, you know, the, the, the science, science of um, earth observation and planetary regeneration. These, I think, are still nascent. There is no, that I'm aware of, sort of like beacon communities yet. And so therefore, there's sort of still dispersal. There's still, you know, yeah, people yeah. are, and I think that's sort of how we started the conversation, was you saying, I think, just this, which is we haven't yet hit the critical mass where there's enough density of communication and focus around these pivotal areas where we can, like, uh, move as rapidly as we need to. And so, yeah. yeah. So, what's next? What, how uh, I know you're you're hosting a forum um, as you're writing your book that I think is sort of an invitation towards one such. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting um, experiment because I started writing this book. Um, I've resisted writing books for more than ten years, with part of me wanting to and part of me not, and just choosing to blog instead. And what made me feel like I needed to write a book right now is that last year when I was working on bioregional regeneration projects, basically observing people in different parts of the world who were trying to create them and gathering insights about the frameworks that they were using, was I started to see a concrete practical coherence that has nascent parts that go back decades. But there, there's a moment right now where something is trying to emerge. And one thing that's needed is a narrative coherence for a growing number of people to enter into the space and have a shared, at least a shared sensibility, if not a shared understanding, depending on what level they're working, to be able to participate in it. And um, when I started writing the book, I felt like I shouldn't wait until a book is published, you know, which would take a long time. I don't actually care about making any money off the book or having it published, that's not my motivation. It's to create a scaffold of learning around how to think at this planetary scale. And then I put an invitation out to start a study group. Anyone who would like to read book chapters, will use it to 
kind of inform our discussions. And um, that was a couple of weeks ago, been about a month now. And uh, I've got 400 people who have signed up to the study group and we've created an online platform. So it's just very new, but it's interesting because part of the underlying motivation of this is not to create an online study group, is the deeper work of creating networks of learning centers that already exist where people can go to do the deeper regenerative education and deeper regenerative practice to start to have those emerge in self-organizing ways. So uh, for example, in Costa Rica, where we lived for 10 months last year, it's not that difficult to imagine a two week or three week long bioregional learning journey to go visit half a dozen permaculture projects because they exist and it's not that hard to form relationships among them. And then to start to use that to synergize a territorial scale relationship that each project alone wouldn't do, but that would start to crystallize a larger conversation. That sort of activity is easy to do at this point in time. If there are enough people thinking about this pathway of regenerating the earth in a coherent way. So the study group is trying to bring that coherence. And I don't have any false delusions of grandeur about the study group doing it, except that for those of us who are gathering in it, that's what we're grappling with. So something much larger than this study group is needed, more decentralized with more participants. But, um, but at least this is a kernel of conversation that's trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would definitely, um, I mean, there's, there, there's been some interesting attempts, you know, Gaia University being one, uh, Global Eco Village Network, New Mundo, um, to kind of create this basket, you know, to weave together different emerging grassroots um, experimentation centers and kind of uh, allow them to, to create a a network that's stronger and can attract more people and can learn faster. And I think I I also see in the sort of larger crypto space, I see a bunch of evolution happening very quickly um, in kind of like local currencies, local economy work, um, commons management, building building tools for commoning. which all leads me to be pretty optimistic that, that we're going to start to see these, uh, we're, we're going to start to see those of us who've been, been at this for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, not to mention those of us who've been at it for, you know, 40, 60 years, um, we may need to check our expectations at the door because this might, move faster than we're ready to accept as possible. (laughs) Yeah, and one of the things that related to the conversation about planetary collapse was I organized a conference that I've, or not a conference, a workshop that I've now given four times and the name of it is Managing Planetary Collapse. And the way that I framed it, which started in like 2018, was um, I wanted to create a filter that would basically cause almost everyone to select out and only those who selected in were ready for deep conversations about earth regeneration. Mm-hmm. And I found that it was successful at doing that on the scale of 15 or 20 people coming to a workshop, which I did four different times and created really powerful coherence among the participants. And so I'm experimenting with it as a, 
kind of a, as a ped, pedagogical pathway is how to aggregate those, those imaginal cells of people in a dialogue together who are ready to do the deep work. And it's, and it's not meant to be a conversation for larger scales. It's really, it works at small scales, but if enough of them are happening at small scales, then they feed into a lot of these other networks that are already evolving. Yeah, I mean, well, hearing you say that, a, a, a um, J.G. Bennett framework comes to mind of um, sort of esoteric, mesoteric, and exoteric levels of communication and, you know, how there's certain sort of initiatory thresholds. If you're going to have a, a, an esoteric conversation, which is needed in order to have a, a core group of people who have deep coherence and sort of a... I guess cognitive flexibility to do to do challenging work um you know how that translates how that then translates up into a middle ground where you sort of have people at different levels and um and then all the way out to what it how it shows up to the you know to the public who just has no um connection with what's happening is you know it's just a really interesting invitation to to be refreshing how we're thinking about our language and what you set up filters that are just sort of like hey if you're not if if this filter bounces you then that's good because you know the conversation won't be useful for anybody yeah and i actually feel like that filter of planetary collapse and its related implications beautifully worked for us to have this conversation where we actually found a point of contention so it wouldn't have just been, oh, I like what Joe tweeted, I'll retweet it. It was, here's a place for a deeper inquiry uh, that we could have fallen into a place of conflict and disagreement and not gone there, but we happen to have gone there now. And, um, and that doesn't mean that I'm justifying, my framing was right. It's just that here's an interesting example of the holding of paradox. Uh, one of our challenges in the larger sense, kind of the collective team human sense is how do these conversational dynamics that can create pathological relationships with each other, where like I might have a conversational dynamic around planetary collapse that's very problematic in another space, but it's actually doing something that's useful to that other space in ways that may not have been clear until well, there's something. Right, yeah, relationship. disruption is important part of regeneration. Yeah. So I, yeah. I mean, totally. And the art of trolling is probably something that the regenerative movement needs to get good at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Now, now I think we do actually, because uh, we, um, we're in this, this time of shakeup where a lot of us are shaken up internally, but we're not able to be shaken up together, or at least not adequately or sufficiently. Art, art, trolling, trolling. You know, I, I, was, I was listening to some podcast, I can't remember the woman's name, but she, she, she grew up partially in the Soviet Union and she was sharing the name of this this art form that emerged in like the the later soviet and and post soviet and still is kind of like a it's a thing in russia around this art form where you the the highest form of art is where you when you can't tell if someone's fucking with you or not yeah where because the line the the blurry line between sort of you know, what you are professing to believe and what you do believe and is sort of like, it's a little bit wavy and it creates this really beautiful art form in which, you know, that 
that is the antidote to this like strange hypernormalization, you know, post-truth world where, you know, we can't tell if the news is fucking true, right? And so it's sort of like our approach to communicating in public forums about, um, in a way that magnetizes people to, to then engage with their own learning journeys somehow needs to sort of like, like match the trolling power. (laughs) You know, it's like the going gets weird and the weird turn pro kind of, you know, invitation. Yeah. And I think in some ways what Jem Bendel has uh, been able to do with his deep adaptations paper is opening that up where there's now an aggregation of at least a few tens of thousands of people who are embracing the the acceptance of dystopian conversation as a pathway of at least possible empowerment. Certainly not all of them are going into empowerment, but some of them are. And it's in that space that's really generative Mm. and um, and just interesting to, to reflect on whether it's net positive or net negative in the long term, we don't know yet. Um, but from what I've seen and just being, people seeing my work associated with it, so I've been in sort of collision with it a number of times, I see overall there's a healing process occurring. I don't know, statistically for the number of people if it's occurring, but there's a subset of people that are self-radicalizing together in a beneficial way. Yeah. And, and that's useful. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's an interesting, uh, it's interesting times we live in, for sure. I mean, no doubt. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm just sort of feeling at any given moment, um, there's so much ripe, there's so much ripeness. And I don't know what the historical antecedent of, of the moment is in like a, an anthropogenic kind of perspective. I. I don't know if you have any thinking about that. I tend to think we're somewhere right around, you know, like the maybe the closest historical antecedent to to the present moment, minus the apocalyptic climate crisis, uh, which you know probably we have to go back to like Paleolithic time to have a a, a human experience that's somewhat similar. But it's is like the invention of the printing press in Europe, when you get all of these, like it polarized, like people got super polarized and there's, you know, religious war happening. And it's just, you know, it's just a total mess, basically. People are fighting over reality in this strange way that feels somewhat, you know, close to what's happening. (laughs) Yeah, I think there are a couple of moments that we could look to for some learning on this. And one is the uh, beginning of the Holocene, yeah. moving out of a period of planetary climate instability to relative planetary stability, where city states could form and more complex trade networks could stabilize. Um, because that's related to the scale of change. Now that the Holocene is over, this is like the, the kind of legal tiny print of the Anthropocene that most people are not reading is that the Holocene is over and that we don't actually know how to organize human societies outside of the Holocene. And 
just like our hunter-gatherer ancestors were organizing prior to the Holocene in a model of climate instability, which we can also learn from, but we have to be conscientious that even those ancient wisdom traditions and their cultural practices may not work in this post-Anthropocene world. It's such a deep shift, we don't know how to make sense of it, and we won't for quite some time. Is uh, I think similar to how the printing press shifted the landscape of discourse in ways that no one understood at the time, that uh, leaving the Holocene is like that. No one understands what it means. I, as an earth scientist, I don't understand what it means. I don't pretend to understand what it means. And so part of our challenge is to embrace that ignorance, to accept the, the horizon of our ignorance, the place where we can't even know that we don't know anymore. The end of the Holocene is like that. And this kind of ICT revolution of information and communication, making it possible for us to have a globalized economy that's like mycelium is also new. And it's maybe 30 years old or 40 years old in its structural implementations, um, but we still don't understand its implications yet. Well, if you think about, you know, They're if you think about the moment of, <clears throat> we take a step back and we think about the Earthrise photo and we think about a global communications network and a global trade network and and uh, you know a global Earth observation network in which we can essentially you know track atmospheric carbon in real time and track weather in real time and we can track for, for you know I, I mean it's a, there's an amazing amount of um, newly available sensory data to to make to, to you know that and that's come at the same time it, you know part and parcel with that is this you know, climate perturbations and political perturbations and just upheaval of the new system. So, I mean, it it's, seems like it's just par for the course in this new emerging that's taking place. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I really value the, the complexity and uh, subtlety that you're bringing to bear in kind of holding all of this. And um, yeah, and the, sort of discernment and invitation for other people to engage in discernment, I think is, is really valuable. So, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, the Earth Observing System is a nice example of, uh, we have eyes that we don't even recognize as eyes yet in a collective sense. The Earth Observing System is one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of humanity that almost no one knows to recognize. It's so cool. To, it's like so if you talk cool. to David McConville, now David McConville proselytizes the hell out of it, but very few people do. And um, this opportunity to make use of it for sense-making is so huge. This is one of the problems I see with the permaculture movement, which I don't see as the fault of the permaculture movement, but it's just part of its, part of its accidental history, is that a lot of people enter the permaculture movement thinking it's about small-scale back to the land. Hmm. When you talk to permaculture people, you have an array of nuance about what they actually mean, but it's come to be sort of default marketed as small scale back to the land, which means that's how most people come to understand it when they're first engaging with it. And yeah. like I said, I don't think it's the fault of the permaculture movement. It's sort of an accident of history. But if the permaculture movement could blend with the earth system science community, where people could see that 
these are part of the same emerging consciousness. Welcome to Network. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, and that's just, what we have we have an open source processing pipeline straight into the Copernicus ESA Sentinel 2 data set. People can just, you know, some Python, you can just pull that data, do any manipulations you want, and you know, make ecological state claims and agreements right on a public blockchain and you know, link your link your small scale permaculture site to a global movement for planetary regeneration. <laughs> yeah, I had a great conversation with Claire Politano um, in San Jose last summer when she was staying in the house of Black, of We Are Black Sheep. Which yep. I know you also know Josh Hughes, and just looking at examples like uh, what's being done with blockchain, what's being done with building supply chains and processing facilities for regenerative agriculture. Um, part of it is just getting the word out. And then part of it is that people don't know these, not enough people know these activities are happening. Another piece is there's not enough scaling potential, meaning if someone finds out about it, there's not enough direct, understandable ways to get involved. Well, yeah, I mean, we have about, I think, you know, the thing, the bridge between creating the sort of user interface that allows the appropriate number of people. I don't think it needs to be everyone, but you know, the appropriate number of interested, smart people to engage with the, with data and um, in a way that is not uh, banalized and monetized in a way that's sort of counterproductive to the sort of cooperative. Um, movement that needs to happen is there is a lot of work. There's a lot of work to create a user experience that, you know, you and I can just hop on our MacBook or, you know, or, or on an internet browser in an internet cafe. And so could someone else who has sort of like, you know, some experience using a smartphone and like plug in and get information about their bioregion and engage. And that's the, that's the gap. The, 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 the tools are still very esoteric, right? You have to, it takes yeah. a long time to be able to understand this intersection of earth observation science and uh, distributed network technology and, you know, and money design <laughs> that is, you know, I think at the intersection of the toolkit that is needed for creating bioregional economies for, for commons management, for engaging people. And so, yeah. you know, that's what we have to, that's what we're really trying to accelerate is just how do you create user experiences and, and uh, monetize the right pieces of it so you can, you know, create an investment vehicle where more and more activity is happening, but do so in a way that is uh, really creating a new toolkit because it's, you know, it's sort of like, what happened with Google, where you have this enormously powerful search engine, but the ability, but what it's done, the ability, you know, Google search engine isn't actually that crazy. And, and there, were, there were predecessors. And it isn't hard to create your own search engine, but there is no one in the world that's creating tools for a build DIY search engine, right? But, yeah. but what we need is sort of like 
people who are dedicated to algorithmic sovereignty and people being able to build their own search engines because otherwise you get this weird reality distortion field because everybody just uses that one and then it gets tweaked a little bit and then elections go weird or whatever right so we the, the same thing is true in setting up the the scaffolding for the trillions of dollars that are about to flow into the regenerative economy like how do you do that in a way that there's enough of the toolkit distributed to a broad enough group of people so that it doesn't create a strange reality distortion field that ends up you know perpetuating the wrong attribute yeah. I think an interesting historical antecedent for this is the invention of double entry accounting, the creation of profit and loss sheets in the yeah. 1470s in Venice, which was just a few decades before the first joint stock company was invented in 1500. Yep. And then the age of corporatism arose, which made nation states possible and all sorts of other interesting things. And so that's a really interesting historical antecedent because it was an accounting tool. That's that right. Followed by a shared responsibility shared ownership model that was new at the time and now and, we're in triple triple entry or or uh, you know like beyond triple entry accounting system yeah now we're in the multi-capital space and yeah. um multi-capital multi multi-entry multi <laughs> yeah and, and what's what's really interesting about this this challenge is um i'm part of a conversation with a group of designers in in italy that create platforms and do platform design and we're exploring how to do platform design for the regenerative movement. And one of our ways of thinking with several kind of perspectives that we're exploring, because it's very early in the process. But one of the pieces is that there is already a fragmentation of global action networks. So you have things like Gaia University and Gaia Education and Global Eco Village Network. And uh, you have the Regenerative Communities Network and you have Common Lands Foundation and ecosystem restoration camps and you can transition towns and you go on and on there are different networks. And those are all only like five people. Yeah, and they're like, <laughs> they, they are not coherent as action networks. And so the need for a, a platform strategy, a strategy that creates ecosystem coherence is still really important to cultivate. And, and, and it's a semantic space. It's, it's not that the tools or pieces or architectures may not exist. They probably do exist. It's that they are not achieving an ecosystem coherence. Well, there has to be an economic imperative. There, there has to be a shared. I mean, that's, our, yeah. that's our, our approach at Region Network is to have a shared public infrastructure with where, where there, is, there are stakeholders who earn money from securing the shared system and that yeah. there, therefore there is vocational imperative for that kind of common unified system and and even if there's another one even if there's a competitor that's fine because there's having two or three coherent groups that have that that focus on providing something unique that that the other group hasn't optimized for is fine. It does need to be some sort of, sort of like common coherence. I, I totally, it has to happen. And I think it has to happen economically. I don't think, I don't think it, it can happen. Like we're not going to sort this out ideologically. You know, it's not a, you know, like is transition towns cooler or are you an eco ecosystem restoration camp person? Like it doesn't, 
it's yeah one of the problems that we have is that the uh we've thrown economics out with the ideological bathwater yeah you know and like there's a lot of confusion around words in economics which is unhelpful for understanding how economics actually works what we need is an understanding of economics actually works and then build economic systems it's so ripe for a new i'm so excited about the formation like like the next generation of economists if we play our cards right because the It froze for just a second, but we're back. Uh, are you familiar with Delton Chin's work? No, no, I'm not. Uh, you should check out, I mean, if you have time, uh, and one of the more accessible ways might actually be listening to the podcast I did with him. Um, I don't remember which episode it is, but you could look back. Um, he's proposing sort of like a unified biophysical sort of based in the reality of thermodynamics um, economic paradigm and, you know, and, and then subsequent kind of, I guess, complementary global reward currency system instead of the existing carbon markets. Anyway, it's, it's, I think it's important. Like it's, it's cool work. There are certain things that I'm like, He's like a different approach. He's more, he's more like, hey, we need to just go get the central banks to underwrite this. <laughs> and which I think is great if they'll do it. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, go for it, dude. <laughs> but, but I'm more like, I'm, not, I'm just not sure that that's going to happen. Uh, anyway, um, um, it's cool. And, and what he's talking about is just the need, and you alluded to this as well, you know, the, econo- the discipline of economics has been off the rails for you know 40 years or so it's done some important work there's pieces of it that are salvageable and powerful but regrounding economics in yeah the biophysical reality of of our planet is um it's an exciting task and yeah I was involved in a project about four years ago where we launched an online magazine called Evenomics, the evolution of economics. And it's, that project is still going. And the way we started it was basically to recruit a set of advisors who were all experts and authors in related fields of what I would just call real economics. So ecological economics, complexity, complexity economics, evolutionary science, behavioral science, and a variety of related fields. Mm-hmm. And what what we found was maybe not surprising was firstly, there is a real science of economics. It is coherent, but institutionally it's a mess because neoclassical economics, which has been invalidated based on its assumptions of rationalism and equilibrium, that still holds too much sway. And then the other is the neoliberalism, the spread of an ideology pretending to be science, which has combined to make together they've made science or made economics unscientific. But the real like legitimate economics is all of the advances in the study of living systems in the last 100 years, which come from many different fields and all converge on the same foundational understandings. And so we have a real and robust and very powerful science of economics, but most people that go study economics in university find the discredited ideological 
false god of economics instead of the real economics. And so hacking that problem in education is a big part of getting the real economics to its way. How would you name this new school? Because it, it, it can't, you know, do, do schools only get named after they've already, you know, like uh, solidified to a certain degree or, or, or can we name it so that it has well, a, a, a tag in our minds? Yeah, it's, it's funny that we have a couple of contenders for it, which would be kind of equally good, which means we don't have one. Like um, complexity economics isn't bad if you understand what complexity is. Evolutionary economics is pretty good if you understand Darwinian evolution and how the science of evolution has matured. Um, ecological economics is quite strong too as a name. But then you get into the camps of who is evolutionary economics and then there's the greenwashing of what's called environmental economics, which is not as robust, but has some, you know, it's, it's a space that's been too propagandized for us to have a single name for it because of where everything stands at the moment, which sort of sucks to just say that. It's, we have a branding problem of too many, too many names have claimed the space. Well, it seems like and there's probably a ripe space for someone to step in and be a you know, charismatic uh, you know, cult figure and synthesize it all and put their brand on it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, know, you look at the work of people like Doug Rushkoff, who have been talking in that space for a long time in various ways. Um, we don't normally think of him as an economist, and probably we shouldn't, but you look at what he's doing, he's mapping out that terrain really beautifully, the evolution of technology and culture and media. Douglas is an artist. Yeah, yeah I love his work. He's working, he's, he's, like, he's like working on the uh, regenerative trolling. Uh, <laughs> he's good at it, yeah. Yeah, he's been at it for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, that's a really essential one for us to collectively aggregate around. What is real economics and how do we use it is a big piece of this conversation. So um, I, I think what, uh, what John Fullerton's doing right now with his series of papers on regenerative finance is a helpful piece. So maybe we call it regenerative economics. That could be the name. Because mm -hmm. um, that isn't a name that is known as a name yet, but it really resonates with all the others. Yep. Um, so yeah, work on work on promoting regenerative economics as, yeah. a, as a mean. Yeah, well, we call it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's already been called that, but how does that become what Well, but it's getting called that, but it's maybe, um, I mean, I think the body of work, I, I would appreciate sort of, you know, like being able to see the whole, the interlinking whole of the ideas, you know, like what are the core concepts and what are the lineages of those core concepts that, that create a co coherent whole and set of tools because ultimately economics is about tools, analytical tools for, you know, decision-making and sense-making. So um that's what I, I don't have a completely clear, I mean, I have my own set of, you know, I'm sort of like a, an amateur pseudo economist myself. And so I have my, my own set of tools that I rely on in order to kind of like guide me, but I don't think it, they stand up to kind of like a, the, the rigor of a community of practice necessarily. They're just things yeah. that ad hoc. What's, yeah. yeah, what's needed is a canon. You know, like your first two years of undergraduate study is learning the canon of the field, whatever that is. And 
Like if you're going to learn physics, you better learn a little bit of electromagnetics, a little bit of thermodynamics, a little bit of quantum mechanics. And, you know, you have like a set of things that make it foundational physics. And there's a canon of regenerative economics that has not been articulated yet as a canon. And it's like a two-year undergraduate curriculum is sort of what you aim for in terms of breadth and substance and coherence. And um, all the pieces, I would say, are, I think all the pieces exist to create that canon. Isn't there danger, though, that if, if we go that route and create a canon replicating sort of the two-year course of study, that it, cal it, it, it like calcifies and dies in the cradle instead of being the force of actual regeneration somehow? Like, what happens I think when we're, you institutionalize a good idea? I, I guess think we're at risk of that right now because universities are failing humanity so dramatically. Um, and one of the challenges is to make universities bioregional, to get them to function as learning ecosystems for bioregional economies, which would start Yeah, I mean, we to, definitely need a whole reboot of, of our educational system, for sure. Yeah, I, I've, all the way down. Yeah. I've been invited to lead a, a blueprinting process for educational transformation with the, the Reporting 3.0 community we're about to start, which will attempt to outline what that design pathway looks like. Um, but it's, I, I think that's one that is going to be really tough to get agreement on, start bringing together people. And I think there are going to be a lot of pet ideas. So we'll yeah. see. It'll be an experiment to see if we can pull it off. Well, that's, yeah, you get people, you get enough people and there's always their, you know, <laughs> everybody's got an agenda, I guess. So. Um, well, I'm just looking up at the time. I've got to, um, I've got to hop off and um, sort of flow into the rest of my day. I've got a, a couple, little bit of work to do and some meetings. Um, so I think it's probably a good moment to start wrapping. Um, do you have, would you like to um, share any resources or, or invitations for anybody who's listening? just you know website or study group information or anything um if people have been if their interest has been sparked yeah i would definitely invite anyone who wants to to join the uh earth regenerators group which is the study group and it's just earth-regenerators.mn.co and mn is mighty networks because that's the platform we're using so i think the earth regenerators study group is where the most interesting action is at the moment around what i'm doing um, and otherwise, just you know, Google me and connect anywhere that feels appropriate. Cool. Um, but I, I want to also say that I'm making an intentional effort to be anti-ego. What I mean by that is I don't want any of this to be about me, and I'm not trying to build my own fiefdom. And actually, I have a history of uh, becoming the flame that attracts the narcissistic moths, and I'm trying to short-circuit that um, to the best of my ability. So I'm trying to defocus myself and the work mm. in structural ways, mm -hmm. uh, which is a difficult challenge. Um, but what I really want to invite is this deep question of how do we discern reality to the best of our abilities, combined with how do we use that discernment process to increasingly co-create with others to regenerate the Earth's biosphere. And that there are a million touch points for that. And I'd much rather people be active in that inquiry than choosing only to do it with me or feeling whatever I'm doing isn't quite right. 
that inquiry is what I care about. And I'm trying to just be in service to it in my own little corners of the world. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thanks for that invitation, Joe. And uh, thanks for hopping on to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. And um, yeah, I hope you're, you and your family have a beautiful, uh, beautiful day and a beautiful year. And uh, please uh, come back and, and join us on the podcast again soon. Yeah, I'd love to. I, I'm really happy that you're doing what you're doing. It's, these conversations are essential. So thank you, Gregory, for everything you're doing. Fantastic. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you.